Ahlan Beautifuls. While my studio is still down, just please bear with me. I have a makeshift studio until my studio is up and running. So I decided to do a blast from the past today. This is from my radio takedown days all the way back from June 6, 2016. And you can still tell that I was still green up in podcasting. My guest, a true professional wrestling legend, Princess Victoria. She's a straight shooter, straight to the point, and pulled no punches. That's why I love this interview. But you already know the drill. Before I lose it, here is your daily spit. Inhale the future. Exhale the past. I will be right back right after this brief commercial break with Princess Victoria. But before the break... Yesterday... I received news that we lost an original Glow Girl and part of Afterglow, Matilda Tihun. She touched many hearts and will be missed. She will stay alive in our memories and Afterglow. Help keep this show free by buying some of our swag of apparel at ButcherSpit.com. We have t-shirts, hoodies, and even baby onesies. That's ButcherSpit.com. Be sure to check out Murky Chronicles drops every Friday. Hosted by yours truly, Theifala, the Butcher Dobashi, and Kenny Roberts. With guests, stories, news on unexplained and bizarre happenings, you can listen on your favorite podcast platforms or just go to lyricalspit.com for the latest shows and links. Without further ado, I would like to introduce a true Legend of women's professional wrestling, one half of former WWF and NWA World Tag Team Champions, the one and only Princess Victoria. How are you doing? I'm doing great. I'm doing absolutely great. I just got done spending the day with my sister and her family, playing in the yard, getting the pool ready, playing with the dogs, and now I'm sitting here having a nice ice-cold margarita on a 90-degree day. Awesome. Well, once again, I want to say it's a pleasure to have a legend like you on here. Um, thank you, and um, you're always welcome here anytime. Um, well, thank you for having me. It's an honor to be on. Oh, thank you. Thank you. 
Well, you know, I guess I'll just start asking and plugging away um, uh, and feel free to answer what you want. And if you want to blurt out some, cut me off and do go right ahead. And um, I just want to start off. Um, do you watch wrestling on TV? And if so, what do you think of the product? Um, I watch some wrestling. I watch a lot of the indie shows. Uh, I do not watch the WWE. Um, wrestling to me is not entertainment. Wrestling to me it is a sport. It was my job. It was my life. And where the WWE has taken wrestling, the last time I watched it, I'm not appreciative of it at all. Um, the word diva makes my skin crawl. Uh, I don't appreciate what Vinnie McMahon has done with the women. Like I said, the, I was a professional wrestler. I was never a diva. Uh, and to me, Vinnie has very much disrespected my sport, so I, I, I refuse to watch WWE wrestling. Wow. Yeah, I you know, I I agree with you. And, um, it, I mean, it's a lot different ball game. Even since I started, it's, it's evolved. And so uh, moving on just a little bit, well, what's your earliest memory of professional wrestling? I'm nine years old, standing up, and I'm looking at this giant of a man by the name of Jimmy Snuka, and he's giving me my first wrestling autograph, and I'm shaking like a leaf. <laughs> wow. And I still have that autograph. Do you? Do you? Wow. Oh, yeah. I started out, like a, I started out as a fan. Um, in fact, uh, I started out, my grandfather took me to my first wrestling match, my first live wrestling match. We used to sit around on Sundays and watch wrestling on TV. And when he took me to my first live wrestling match, and Jimmy Snooker came off that top rope, came flying off that top rope. And, of course, it was the finish. I, I fell in love. And when, when he was kind enough to take the time, not asking for money, to give me an autograph on an 8 by 10 I was, I was enamored. Been in love with the sport since that day. Now, did you ever work with them or travel with them? Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, when I was, I got my first apartment when I was 14. I had, I had kind of a, 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 a tough childhood. Um, I left home at 14. I got my first apartment, and it was a wino hotel just about six blocks down Burnside away from 23rd. And I worked, uh, worked at the Denny's on the corner of 23rd and Burnside. And I started matches at the Chautauqua Sports Arena. Well, and that in Portland? Yeah, that was in Portland. Uh-huh. And uh, I, uh, sorry for that, my little nephew just came up trying to ask me a question. Oh, and uh, I started going to the matches there. Well, I tended to dress up. I, I, was, I used to wear dresses and nylons and the high heel candies. And before long, I started noticing I was paying for a general admission ticket, but I was getting front row seating. 
And then all of a sudden I started noticing more than one wrestler landed in my lap. <laughs> and uh, then one day I had a vacation. I got my first paid vacation, and I went on tour with the guys. I, I mean, I wasn't riding with the guys. I actually got on a Greyhound bus, and I went to Everett, and I went to Salem, and I went to Eugene, and I went to Yakima, and, of course, I hit Portland. About the third day into the run, Buddy Rose is coming down. I believe it was in Goldendale. I won't swear to it. And I'm sitting on an aisle front row seat, and all of a sudden, Buddy walks about two feet past me, and uh-huh. he's dead in his tracks, and he turns around, and he points at me. He says, this woman, this woman, she's everywhere. And uh, then I caught, I caught the attention of Sandy Barr. And I lost my job at Denny's. So I had started, I, I, Dale, uh, Dale, Lew- Dale Lewis was a uh, security guard up there. I got to know him. I got to know Peggy, one of the people who worked for Sandy. And I lost my job, so I talked to them. I said, is there any job up here that I can do? And that started the ball rolling. First, I was uh, setting up for Sandy Bar's flea market on, on uh, Saturday morning. And we'd set up for the flea market. We'd pop 200 tables, eight-foot tables, mind you. We'd set everything in line. They'd do the flea market Saturday. Saturday afternoon at 2 o'clock, we had to break down the flea market, then set up the ring and all the chairs for TV wrestling Saturday night. After TV wrestling was over Saturday night, we had to break down the ring, break down all the chairs, and reset for the flea market Sunday morning. Well, then on top of that, I was working in his print shop because he printed the programs for professional wrestling. Um, And then one day, somehow, Sandy talked me into becoming a professional wrestler. He said, just try it. Just come to my my school. I'm starting a school. Come to my school and see if you like it. And what it was is he only had one girl that had signed up, and he needed a second. And from the moment I took my first bump, although my ears were ringing, I was dizzy, I, I, was, I was hooked. And we started out with 20 guys and two women. Well, the woman quit within the first two weeks, and so did about 15 of the guys. Wow. The next thing I know, Sandy starts bringing in the other wrestlers. We're about two months into training. Now, understand, I did not learn professional wrestling to start with. I had to learn how to collegiate-style wrestling. We had to do sit-downs, take-downs, the whole sit-outs, take-downs, the whole nine yards. And we didn't start out in the ring wrestling. The first hour that we were in that ring, we were working out. We were doing Harvard brushes, push-ups, jumping jacks, running around the uh, – Chautauqua Sports Arena, then we got down to wrestling. And, of course, there were five-gallon buckets strategically placed around the ring <laughs> for a buck. Uh, and it wasn't if you were going to throw up, it's which bucket you were going to hit. Wow. That's some old school stuff. Oh, yeah. Well, and Sandy, let me tell you what, Sandy Barr did not look at me like a woman. 
I was a professional wrestler. There was no gender. If you could, if you couldn't cut it, he didn't care if you were a woman or a man. If you couldn't cut it, he didn't put his name on you. Now, once the girl dropped out, all of a sudden Velvet McIntyre showed up. And that was about the time Sandy started bringing in the likes of Professor Dale Lewis, um, Buddy Rose. They'd all come in for a day or two, and each one of them had their own style of wrestling. And that's what I really remember is we weren't trained in this cookie-cutter wrestling style everybody has now. You know, don't mean to interrupt you, but he hit it right on the point. It's cookie cutter. Like when you see in WWE, what happened to the days? I mean, everyone's doing the headlock the same way, taking the same comps. I mean, there's no variety. Nothing. Oh, I know. Yeah. If you watch one match, you've seen the rest of the matches. Mm -hmm. when When I told you about that traveling for seven days watching the matches. Uh huh. I went town to town for seven straight days. I never remember seeing the same finish, the same high spots in any of those seven days. Every town was different. And I'm sure that because they know how to work and knew what the crowd needed or how to make the crowd react because all the crowds are different. Would you agree with that? Back in that, back in my day, God, that sound makes me sound old. Uh, <laughs> back in my day, when you walked in the dressing room, you found out who was going over. You decided what was going to happen right after the tie-up, what was going to be the uh, high spot, and what was going to be the finish. And we did 20, 30-minute matches. We didn't do these 5, 10-minute crap they do now. Yeah. Uh, you know, they, they wrestle for five or ten minutes and they talk for 30. Uh, I get te- tired of hearing people talk. Um, but everything that happened in between the start, the high spot, and the finish tended on how the crowd was reacting. Bingo. You know, it was, it, it, in my day it was called Psychology. You did not sit in the dressing room for three hours and go, well, I got to get this move in, and I got to get this move in, and I got to get this move in, and I got to, I got to, I got to. No, you ain't got to. I can remember matches where I threw maybe one drop kick and got the snot kicked out of me the rest of the time because that's what was making the crowd stand up. You know, I, I, didn't, I didn't have this great, uh, you know, uh, five-minute-long sweep of rock kicks throwing you into the rope, jumping off the top of the ring. No, I got maybe one drop kick in, and then I got kicked in the head, and I was back down on the mat getting the boots put to me. But that's what the crowd, when it was my turn, when it was my comeback, they popped and they roared because they'd been sitting there waiting for it for 20 minutes. They hadn't seen me do a drop kick, a body slam, and all that. They had to wait for it. And when they got it, they loved it. Well, what, what, one, what one thing would you change right now to improve professional wrestling? Say that again. I'm sorry. Oh, that's okay. Uh, what one thing would you change right now to improve professional wrestling? 
the day that Vince Sr. sold the business to Vince Jr. Really? Yep. That was the end of professional wrestling as we know it, or as I know it. And I've talked to quite a few old-timers, which I'm one of them, uh, and they pretty much all feel the same. I won't name names. I'll let them stand up for themselves. Mm-hmm. But to me and my brothers and my sisters, that was pretty much the end of professional wrestling as we knew it. And that would be the only thing that I would change. Uh, too many wrestlers have died since the WWE has come into existence. You know, um, back in my day when you got hurt, Bill Watts was right there for you. Don Owens was right there for you. I'm not so sure I see that today in the WWE. Yeah, you know, what I noticed, too, is I'm familiar, um, you know, I've talked with uh, Billy Jack Kane. Have you ever yep. worked with him? No, but I I watched him wrestle. Okay. I became, you know, pretty good friends with him, and I don't know if you heard about his big, uh, matter of fact, I had the attorney on the podcast, uh, Constantine Kairos. Um, he is my attorney. Oh, he's your attorney? Yes, sir. Are you are you in with the lawsuit, too? Yes, sir. Okay, great, great, because I, I was working closely with him to, you know, get some of the boys and working with Billy and the whole nine yards. Um, um, to the head. Uh, uh, brain fart? Yeah. <laughs> Oh, I was going somewhere with it, and I forgot. I guess I'll come back to it. Well, I can tell you that Constantine is doing a great service to the boys and the ladies in wrestling of old because the WWE and the latter part of the WWF did not take care of their wrestlers like the other promoters did. Once you were injured, they didn't want any part of you. If you couldn't bring in a dollar for them, if you were injured, you were done. When uh, my neck got broke in the second week of September in 1984, uh, I was taken to the hospital, and I was told I needed surgery, and that was the last thing I heard from the McMahons, and Lillian Elsor basically told me, you owe me $200 rent, and you need to find another place to stay because... Only professional wrestlers can stay here, and you can't wrestle. Oh, wow. And that, that, that would be the fabulous Moolah, correct? Uh, yes. Yes, it would. No. Yeah. No, I, I, lived, I lived on her property. Uh, she was uh, the manager that booked us for the WWF at that time. Oh, okay. Well, and, and, and go ahead. Oh, oh yeah. Before I, I lose, get another brain fart, I remember what I was going to ask you. Um, I found it interesting once this lawsuit was going public and stuff. Right. Uh, that then you notice on TV, WWE would like, you know, make Daniel Bryan, uh, you know, retire because of concussions. And then they keep on talking about concussions real heavily. And I didn't see that. Uh, I, never, I, never, I, never see, I never seen any of that um, come addressed until after the lawsuit was going on. Absolutely correct. This is the first time that I've seen it addressed. I can't tell you how many concussions I've had. You know, um, there's been times where I've laid in the middle of the ring 
and I wasn't selling. I was try I was trying to get my head together because I just you know a board had popped up in the ring and hit me. I still got a permanent bump on the back of my head where one of the two by fours the guy didn't have the ring strapped down properly, mm-hmm. and one of the two by fours came up and slapped me in the back of the head, and it it knocked me out for probably about a good five seconds. Um, and like I said, when I got my neck broke, you know. I was I was a raggedy Ann who had too many stitches out of her, you know, couldn't be, couldn't be sewed up again, so I got thrown in the trash. And uh, right now, I'm actually um, I'm I'm suffering substantially from my injuries in wrestling. Uh, I have chronic pain issues that sometimes keep me up and awake for a week at a time, uh, all due to the broken neck the broken collarbone, multiple dislocations of different joints, the constant bumps. You know, they talk about uh, professional football players and the concussions. Well, these professional football players, and I'm not taking anything away from them because they are absolute athletes, but they'd hit the ground two or three times during a game, and they'd have a game once a month. Professional wrestlers would hit the mat 20, 30 times a night, and they were working seven nights a week, 365. So a lot of us, at this point in time, our bodies are broke. Yeah, and if you didn't work, you didn't get paid. Right. Oh, I lost, I lost a good job. I had a job that I loved. And because of the issues of the insomnia due to the chronic pain, I lost my job. I've been living on, I had to sell my home. I've moved into a mother-in-law suite with my sister, God bless her soul. And uh, I'm living off of what's left of, uh, of the proceeds from selling my home. Mm. Now, right. now, being, you know, women, uh, being a woman in the wrestling business, you know, during your time, was it hard? Was it hard for a woman? You know what? No. no. Not if you can do your job. And Velvet and I did our jobs. You know, the guys would work with us in the dressing room, or if we got back to the motel, if we had something that we needed to hone, the guys would work with us. After I, after I left the Pacific Northwest, if I came into a territory, we needed a, a place to stay, or we needed a ride to a town, the boys were there for us, and so were the promoters. So, so the, the rest of her, the, the brotherhood and the sisterhood was pretty tight with, amongst the workers, correct? Oh, we were a family. We were a family. Um, yeah, we were a family. We pulled ribs on each other. We had, our little, we had our little spats. I remember one rib. Oh, my God, the boys got me so good. They almost got me. They almost got me killed in Louisiana. Oh, no. Oh, yeah. Um, junkyard Dog. You remember Dog. Oh, yeah. Uh, that was one of my buddies. Yes, and uh, Dog had just bought uh, his first Mercedes from Bill Watts. Well, T.A. and Buddy Landau and Ted DiBiase 
all talked me into picture this. Us four girls are driving down the road in my in my station wagon. We pull over to the side of the road in a dirt gravel part of the road, raise the hood, we've gotten past dog, and I'm sitting on the side of the road and, and Jerky our dog was probably one of the biggest gentlemen next to Andre the Giant there was in the business. So here comes a dog, Velvet's sitting at the hood, I'm at the wheel, hood's up, dog pulls in behind us. He's just day before got this Mercedes. As he pulls in, Velvet slams the hood, jumps in the car, I peel out and throw gravel all over that Mercedes. Oh, <laughs> I had to hide for a week. Well, he was really ticked off, I take it, huh? But he wanted to kill me. <laughs> as much as I, I had no clue how much that car meant to him. You know, it, a car never meant anything to me. It was a place, it was something to get from point A to point B. Uh-huh. But he'd been wanting a Mercedes his whole life. And I didn't have a clue. Oh, no. Uh, but, uh, and DiBiase got me on another one. We were, uh, we were at a motel in, uh, I believe it was Alexandria. And, uh, Jim Neidhart was staying with me and Wendy. This was another trip. Well, Jim had a family and a wife, and he was trying to save money. And, of course, us girls, we didn't get paid as much as the guys, so we were trying to save money. So we split a room with Jimmy. Because, we didn't have anything to worry about. And I'm sitting there, and I'm ironing my dress for the night for match. And I get a phone call. I said, hey, hello. I just want to know what you're doing in a motel room with my husband. <laughs> I said, ma'am, this is Jimmy Neidhart's wife, and I want to know what you and that other girl are doing in the motel room with my husband. I said, ma'am, I said, we're just trying to say, no, you better tell me right now what's going on. And I flew hot. Oh, because wow. I did. I flew hot because she was accusing Jimmy. It wasn't so much that she was accusing me. Uh-huh. She was accusing Jimmy of cheating on her, and Jimmy's family was everything to him. Uh-huh. I popped back. I went, lady, let me tell you what. I said, Jim Neidhart is a biggest gentleman I've ever known, and the only thing he's doing by trying to, by staying with us is trying to save money so he can send it back home to your tail end. And I cleaned that up. Um, and she said, well, I'll tell you what, I'm down in the lobby, and I'll, I'll be right up, and we'll discuss this. And I said, fine, come on up. And then common sense took over. And I'm sitting there, and I'm ironing my dress, looking at the door, going... This woman is coming up to my room. She thinks I'm sleeping with her husband, and I started shaking. Because oh, no. I used to be able to kick the door in with a shotgun. And I'm sitting there, and I'm ironing that dress, or trying to iron the dress, and I'm shaking like a leaf, and all of a sudden, the phone rings. And it's Teddy. And he's laughing his tail off. He had gotten some girl to call me. And they let me stew for about 10 minutes before they called me and let me off the hook. Oh, wow. That's memories. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I'll tell you what. The four, year, the four and a half years that I was in wrestling, the seven years that I was involved in wrestling, 
Well, other than the birth of my son and my second marriage, the best time of my life. Um, it was, it, we were a family, you know, and I don't believe it's like that today. Yeah, especially with the territories gone. I, I mean, it, it's hard for the green guys, the rookies, to learn. I mean, uh, you know, the, the car rides town to town, that's like your classroom. Get the right. veteran brains and now it's... It, it, exactly. You know, on those car rides, there were it was a it was a classroom. Um, and today, like I said, you go into the dressing room. I haven't been in a dressing room in about a year, but when I was going into the dressing rooms before I moved back here to uh, Washington, mm-hmm. it was it was it was me, 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 me. I gotta, I gotta, I gotta. There, it, it, nothing about what the crowd needed, what the crowd wanted, you know, and it just, it, it, it saddens me sometimes. You know, what um, I noticed, you know what I noticed, too, if you, they, they go over move for move, and once they screw up a move, they're like a deer looking uh, at the headlights. Yeah, it's, yeah, exactly. What do we do now? <laughs> you know, you didn't have to worry about that back in the day because you didn't want to know what you were going to do next anyway. Yeah. Or, it it just... I'm sorry, go ahead, go ahead. It just came naturally. You know, you could, it, it was almost you could feel, you, you could feel what needed to happen. You know, um, and, and some of these kids today don't even know how to reverse a hammer lock. I had a kid, I went on the, I went on the road with him, mm-hmm. and I had to teach him how to reverse a hammer lock because he didn't know how. How the heck do you get in the ring and not know how to reverse a hammer lock? Well, let me tell you. Now, I'll probably go on a little rant here. Uh, I moved to the Midwest, and I wrestled for a few years there full-time, you know, and that's all I did. And then, especially like in the state of Michigan, there's no commission. So everybody and their mother wanted to put on a, you know, wrestling show and, and throughout the Midwest and, what they do, hire their buddies, hire these backyarders, and uh-huh. not properly trained, and then, you know, they don't pay the professional wrestlers, and then they wonder why the attendance go down, because people are watching crap, and you get what you pay for, so that people unproperly trained, going in there, they don't know how to reverse a hammer lock. Oh, I could give a whole, say, whole show. Oh, you and me both. You and me both. Um, like I said, if you weren't properly trained, if you could not properly execute moves, and I'm talking every move, you know, hammer lock, grab the foot, uh, figure four, rig, get out of it, crawl to the ropes, get up, get pulled off the ropes, uh, kick off. You know, you're, you're not sure what's coming next, but you kind of look at your opponent and, everybody, you know, you've got a cue. Yep. Today you put them in the ring and say have a match, you know, uh, here's your start, here's your high spot, here's your finish, they'll stand there and look stupid for 20 minutes. <laughs> yeah, there are a couple of exceptions to the rule. Uh, one young man that I watched in the uh, in the East who is just, from what I understand, he started doing a couple of spots on the WWE. That's Brandon Scott. Oh, now, okay. I'm, I met him with uh, uh, VWC in uh, Norfolk, Virginia. Excellent worker. 
beautiful, and I mean beautiful drop kicks, beautiful execution on his moves, and he's not worried about whether he's going over or whether he's doing a job. He's worried about whether those fans got their money for it. You know, we got some emails. Um, would you mind answering some? Okay, sure. Okay. Donna King from Kashmir, 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 Washington. Okay, she writes, if you had to decide what four faces on a Mount Rushmore of women's wrestling, who would it be? What woman in women's wrestling would be on Mount Rushmore? Yeah, four faces. Four faces. Uh, Wendy Richter. Velvet McIntyre. Leilani Kai. And Sabrina, Doris Whitlock, uh, wrestling's Wonder Woman. I would have to put Princess Victoria on there. Well, I don't like blowing my own horn. Uh, <laughs> but, those women were in the business. In fact, Leilani Kai is still in the business. Sabrina does some wrestling at times. Joyce Grable, God bless her heart, even with uh, 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 what is it she's got, the, the cancer of the bone. Uh, you know what, uh, leukemia. She's got leukemia. She still makes an appearance. Who, who has leukemia? Uh, Joyce Grable. Oh, wow. Okay. Right. And she just, if I'm not mistaken, she just had open heart surgery as well. Wow. And Leilani Kai is still wrestling down in Florida. Yeah, I had conversations with Leilani Kai. I've been trying to get her on the podcast also. Well, you can forget getting Velvet on. It's not that she does Well, number one, she doesn't like to talk. Uh, number two, she's got hearing problems in her ears, and she can't hear over the phone. It's not that she's being, you know, trite or anything like that. It's just she can't hear. And she's got hands full with those twins of hers. <laughs> Can you imagine not only having twins, they're redheaded? Wow. Maybe that's a good thing. She's kind of deaf. She won't have to hear them yelling. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> Well, I, I sympathize to that, you know. I I wear hearing aids myself, you know, and uh, sometimes I have to take them out just because I don't want to hear people. That's another story. Yeah, see, you're the lucky ones. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't want to hear Turn this down. <laughs> yeah. All right, Kim Rush from Tacoma, Washington asked, what was the best promoter you ever worked with? Well, I've got two promoters. I can't choose between the two of them because they were both that great. That was Don Owens uh, with the Pacific Northwest. And the reason with Don is Don took care of his people. And a specific instance was my first match was set for right around Christmas, Mm -hmm. 1980. And my grandfather ended up in the hospital. I got a call. I, I was running around the Bomber Motel in Portland. I'm sure you remember that. And uh, showed up at the Portland Sports Arena. There was a call from my mother that my grandfather was in the hospital. And I'm telling Sandy, look, I can't work tonight. 
and I wasn't wrestling that night. I was, I was supposed to do some interviews. I said, I can't work. I've got to get on a bus. I've got to go to my grandfather. Sandy says, I'll tell you what. Put you on my private plane, and I'll fly you to Dallasport. So he flew me to Dallasport the next morning. As soon as the sun came up, the plane took off. It was a little Cessna uh, 180. Oh, nice. Oh, yeah, we got to fly over the Columbia Gorge after a snow. It was absolutely beautiful. Uh, we landed. My grandmother picked me up literally on the runway. We got to the hospital. I got to see my granddad. We drive 20 minutes across the bridge to Wishram, Washington. As soon as we walked in the door, we got a call from the hospital that my grandfather was in complete organ failure. We needed to get back as soon as possible. I give Sandy a quick call. We jump in the car. We go over there. Grandma had to make the choice, and Grandpa passed away. Well, my match was supposed to be the following week. I'm sitting there, and I go to call Sandy, and I told Sandy, I said, look, I said, my grandma's been married to this man plus years, and he just passed away. I need to stay here. I need to be with her. He said, I'll call you back in a few minutes. Well, Sandy didn't call me back. Mr. Don Owens called me back. And he, and he told me, he said, Princess, you take as much time to do what you've got to do. Please take care of your grandmother. He said, we'll reschedule the matches, and your job will be here when you get back. Oh, that's a class act. Bill Watts, the reason I put him up there, um, I was in... Thibodeau, and it was Velvet, Velvet and I were wrestling against, uh, no, yeah, it was Velvet, we were wrestling against each other still, and Velvet was with Buddy Landell, and I was with Tommy Rogers, and I, uh, Velvet threw me in the ropes, I came across, she dropped down, I went into Buddy, Buddy gave me a fuck forearm to the face, well, when he hit me, he hit me, my head was tilted just right that the vertebrae in my neck lifted up, the second vertebrae in my neck between the second and third lifted up, and I trapped a major nerve, and I got what they called Bell palsy, which is where your face paralyzes. And I was being Victoria. I wouldn't go to the doctor. I said, ah, it'll fix itself. You know, no big deal. Didn't hurt. Uh, about, about a week later, my right eye started to drop. And I was in the dressing room, and I had gotten real emotional about it because I was looking in the mirror trying to put on my makeup, and I noticed that my eye had started to drop. Magnum T.A., Terry Allen, another good friend of mine, came in, and he saw me crying. And I told him why. The next morning, I got a call from Bill Watts. He said, you have an appointment at such and such an address with such and such a doctor, he said, if you don't show the appointment, don't show up to wrestle tonight. Well, I went to that doctor. He gave me what I needed. He put me on some B12 complex shots. Uh, gave me, you remember the old water weight bag? That uh-huh. you put up? So he gave me that, so I, and I had to sit for an hour perfectly still every night so that it would raise up the vertebrae and allow the nerve to untrask itself. Was it painful? Huh? Was it painful? No. And I never saw a bill for that, and he never took it out of my wages. Oh, that, that, that's awesome. 
That was the promoters back in the day. You know? And and they kept you working and they paid you well. You know, if I... Oh, heck no. Well, just before I got out, this crap about screwing the wrestlers started. You know, uh, I can remember driving from Alexandria, Louisiana to Tampa, Florida in one night. Showing up, we were semi-main event, and I went to Dusty to get my pay. And he handed me $200 for all four girls. And I don't, I don't mean $200 a piece. And I looked down at the money in my hand, and I looked at Dusty, and I gave him the look. Back down at my hand, I looked at Dusty. He went, I'm not the promoter. I'm, not, I'm just the booker. I went, yeah. yeah. And I, I, looked, I looked at the money again, and I looked at Dusty. I said, I'll tell you what, don't call me. I'll call you. And, and that's when that started. You know, when I, when, I got in, when I first got in the business, Don Owens, Bill Watts, guys like that, they paid us well. Al Tomko, although he didn't pay well, he did pay according to the gate. Oh. You know, he paid according to the gate and what row you were in. You know, opening match got X, second match got X, semi-main got X, main event got X percentage of the gate. Do you think that you think that could, that formula could work today? It should work today. It worked then. You know, if you've got if you've got the right promotion, if you've got the right promoter, and they're promoting the matches, and see that's something I don't see. They're not right. promoting the matches on on the trifactor. You know, back in the day, it was TV, radio, newspaper, and the posters all over town. Now it's just Facebook. Really? You're limiting, you're limiting the people you're attracting. Yep, I agree. Oh, you you got to get on a radio. People still listen to the radio. You know, people still watch TV. People still read the newspaper. Not everything is on the computer. You're missing a whole factor of society out there if you're not doing all of that. Well, and if you're doing all of that, you're doing a disservice to your workers. You know, and I think another thing is just too many people get in the business too easy and people that have money or to throw away and their marks and yes. want to be promoter. But like you said, people need to know how to promote. Don Owens was a promoter. Bill Watts was a promoter. They were promoters. The art of wrestling, just like art of promotion, is promoting is vanishing. Well, that's what's killing the business. You know, first you lose your promoters, then you, you lose your workers. What's left for the business? You know, I, I, wish, I wish I had the money. I really do. You know, I, I hear there's a new, uh, there's an indie, an indie promotion up here in Washington, uh, Blue Something. Uh, that I was told I need to check out. Uh, What's it called? Blue? I'm familiar. I haven't heard about that one. Uh, blue? Blue what? Oh, Is, shoot. Where's it based out of? I believe it's based out of Portland. Oh, BCW? Oh, that's it. That's it. BCW. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I worked for them for a little while. Yeah. yeah is, I'm sorry, go ahead. Isn't it blue-collar wrestling? 
Yeah, that's, yep, Blue Collar Wrestling. Yeah, they run weekly shows at the, um, the, the Eagles Lodge. And, uh, yeah, yeah, they have a pretty good outfit out there. Um, yeah. It's been evolving. It's been evolving. Right. Uh, like, you know, they, they run constantly. They got good workers. But once again, you know, art of promoting. That's right. Art of promoting. You need to... Uh, I, I think the problem is, without putting anyone down, they're content with where they're at. They get a couple right. hundred people, and they're content. But as you know, back in the day when you wrestled, you get a couple hundred people. That's a failure. Right. Well, excuse me. I've got a cold. Hang on a minute. <laughs> well, it also just depended on the size of the building. Now, if you go to 500 people and you've only got 200 people, yeah, that's a failure. But and then but then again too, I've also seen this. Back in the day it didn't matter if there were five, fifty, five hundred or five thousand or fifty thousand people in that crowd, you worked just as hard for every one of those crowds. You yeah. know, and and I have seen the oh God, we've only got fifty people. Well, I'm not gonna break sweat for this. Well yeah. that's your problem. Do you agree with this analogy? Promoters' jobs to bring the fans in, and the rest of the jobs to keep them coming back. Absolutely correct. Absolutely correct. Uh, the promoter can work as hard as he can and get a full house, but if those wrestlers don't give those fans their money's worth, if they don't walk out of there satisfied, and if they haven't gone through every emotion from mad, glad, sad. Uh, all the way down the line, if they haven't hated the a heel and loved the baby face, they're not going to tell their friends about it. Or if they do, it's not going to be good. You, you know what's sad? Before I forget is, I won't mention any promotions names, but uh, I went to, I worked for this promotion because a buddy of mine was in town and wanted me to, you know, be there with him. So, you know, I worked it mm. It's pretty sad when you know people that want to come see you wrestle, but you kind of discourage them to come because, you know, your match that you're involved in is going to be good, but the rest of it's going to be the shit, and you don't want that to be the first taste of professional wrestling. And I hate to say that. I had to tell them. I had to kind of discourage them not to come, but I didn't want that to be the first, you know, taste of pro wrestling. Well, I I am I am blessed that I have never been in that situation. I I've never been with a group of wrestlers that I did not respect their work and that I would not promote their work and I am sorry that you were in that situation. I I would I would have canceled. Yeah. And the thing is and, and, the thing is the workers I love the workers is not their fault. But right? the promoters that let them work and it was like the second, the second show, I didn't even, I, I, I got, I was so, in, you know, uh, uh, I don't mean to go on a ramp. Let me give you an example. Lack of respect. I'm all about respect, and I'm old school at heart. So right. we're, at this, we're at this festival. So um, Chief Atacula Kula, great friend of mine, we travel. We had, we were in PWI. We had big feuds, go Puerto Rico, blah, blah, blah. And so he, he was in town. And so um, the, the next show, uh, I said, I'm just going to, I'm not going to work. I'll, I'll, I'll manage you, you know. And we sat across the street 
at the bar, got something to eat, and I was looking across the parking lot. They had workers training in front of the people. They had kids in there. I was fuming. I was pissed. I said, now that's why no one respects wrestling, you know. Well, K-Fave is dead. K-Fave is dead. You know, I remember in my day, there was nobody allowed. If, If we had to get in the ring before before the match, nobody, including the security guard, was allowed in that room. It was closed off. Nobody could see what was happening or who was in there. Today, and I've seen exactly what you're talking about. I saw it up in uh, Connecticut. They're getting out, and they're taking bumps in front of the crowd as they're coming in. Yeah. Well, and I'm, I'm going, I'm going, what the hell? Yeah. You know, this is... This would have been reason to get fired in my day. Yeah. Well, you know. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I mean, I get boiled up. I, I was no, go ahead. Okay. Go ahead. Okay. Uh, August 7, 1992, I was the youngest promoter. I was, I was fighting with the commission. That's a whole other story. But the first but the first card I had to over 700 people, I had Playboy Buddy Rose, had Ed Moretti, uh, oh, God, Ed Moretti. Yeah, I love that guy. Buddy Wayne, I had, I had a, a you know, uh, great card. And the, the, we were in a bingo hall, and the, there were stairway, stairways up where the dressing room was. I had all the windows blocked. I had two entrances. Like you said, I wouldn't let security. I wouldn't let no I wouldn't even let family members up there. It was right. it was Kate and we went so cafe we did a, a angle where it was it was so, almost it was supposed to be a pre uh, uh you know not planned Colmider glove match type deal so right. make it look, to make it look like it wasn't even uh, pre planned I went and got, had him get a broomstick ducked I mean we we it was it was I don't know cafe that's the big thing it's. I don't know. I get frustrated. I'm sorry. This is your show. I don't need to go on a rant. No, it's your show, and I understand, and I totally agree. I mean, why Why are you going to pre-show your show? Why are you going to take the fun out of it? And, and I'm speaking as both a mark and a wrestler. And I was a mark before I was, and I was a big mark. You know, if I had walked into that arena and I'd seen Jimmy Snuka and Roddy Piper in the ring practicing their moves before the match, I would have, I would have lost all the wonder. Yep. You know, all the magic. You take away the magic when you take away, you know, the cafe. Yep. I mean, it, you pissed know, me, it pissed me off when they showed the, they revealed the magic on, on TV when they did the Secret of Magic. I'm not uh-huh. even a magician, and it pissed me off because I felt like they were getting shafted like the pro wrestlers did when they did the Secrets of Pro Wrestling. I absolutely agree. And I'm a magic fan, too, and I never watched it, if that tells you anything. Yeah. It's just like with wrestling. I, I've been a mark since I can remember. And one night, and this is when I quit telling people that I was a professional wrestler, uh, do you remember when Vinny took the boys over to Kuwait and I believe it was Triple H was Santa Claus, and oh, it was yeah. China. And what were the other two girls' names? It was two blondes and a brunette. Oh, oh gosh, was one of them? Was it one of them Trish? 
I think one of them was Trish, and it, they were they were talking about a competition. The girls would have a three-way competition, and whoever won the competition was going to be Santa's little helper with Triple H. Oh, I remember. Now, I'm thinking they're going to have a wrestling match. And they walk out in the short little Santa suits, which I didn't have a problem with until they took them off. And they had three triangles and butt flaws. And they started, and they started to dance. It wasn't a wrestling match competition. It was a dance competition. And the only thing missing was the pole. And my 55 DLP almost took a bump because I almost put my foot through it. <laughs> that day was the day I quit watching the WWE. And I quit telling people I was a professional wrestler. And as I recall... Uh, it was before my son was born, so it was before 1992. It was before I was pregnant, so it was before 1991. It was somewhere between 88 and 91 when that happened. When my son was born, my son never knew I was a professional wrestler until he was 15 years old, and I could show him the VHS tapes of what I did as professional wrestling versus what they call women's professional wrestling at that time. Yeah. And until I saw a couple of ladies in some of these indie circuits telling people I was a professional wrestler. Once I saw Nyla Rose, uh, La Great Cheyenne, uh, Destiny, the MLOW crowd, mm-hmm. I, had quit, I had quit telling people I was a professional wrestler. Once I saw these women, and they're not in the WWE, these are indie wrestlers. Uh, Nala just went to Japan on tour. Um, these ladies are old school wrestlers. They're professional wrestlers. They hone their craft. They practice. They work out, you know. And they're not in three triangles and butt floss. <laughs> yeah. okay, uh, okay, we got there. Oh, go ahead. I thought you were dead. Go ahead. But uh, since I saw those ladies, I have started telling people, Yes, I was a professional wrestler, and do not compare me with the divas today. I am not a diva. I never was a diva. I never will be a diva. I was a professional wrestler. Well, I noticed. I noticed WWE stopped calling their wrestlers diva now. It was an insult. Yeah. I, I got another email here from Sarah G. from El Paso, Texas. Were you there during the Spider Woman and the Wendy Richter match? Also, did you get along with both women? I uh, did not get along with Mula. Uh, had to pretend to get along with her because she was the one who booked the girls. Mm-hmm. Uh, Wendy Richter was an, was an awesome wrestler. She worked out. Uh, she honed her crap. And, no, I was not there. And if I had been there, Wendy would not have gotten that fast count. Because as soon as I would have seen the screw job that they did on, were doing on Wendy... I would have been at ringside to help Wendy. Really? Because they screwed Wendy. Yeah, I remember. I was. I remember watching. I wasn't even in the business. I was young, and I even knew something was weird. I was like, "This don't look right." Mula wasn't even selling anything after the match. I noticed. No. Yeah. No. Well, you know, Mula did not hold her belt for the twenty-eight years she claimed she did. Oh, she didn't. No. 
Sue Green took it from her in Texas in, I believe it was the late 70s. Mm-hmm. Buddha walked out to the ring, and she slapped Tex. And Tex's head went sideways, and then she came back and said, oh, you want to play that game? Now, understand, Tex was trained by Danny Hodge. And she learned to shoot before she learned to wrestle. And she's five years older than me. Mm-hmm. And if she came after me, I'm running. <laughs> <laughs> but she took Moolah's belt. She oh. took, she made Moolah say, I quit. And was it a shoot? It was a shoot. Oh, wow. I've seen the pictures of her in the dressing room in Madison Square Garden where Vince Sr. had to buy the belt back from Tex. And part of the contract of her giving the belt back to Moolah, she would not lose it back to Moolah. She wouldn't do a job. She handed it to Moolah. Part of the contract was Moolah had to book her nine months out of the year and could not take a percentage. And that was the only thing Tex would give the belt back. And she also lost it to Velvet in the United Kingdom in the 90s. And I think, uh, work. Oh, okay. But it was dropped back before she came back. And I've got pictures on our fan page of Velvet wearing the women's world uh, tag team, uh, I mean the women's world title belt. Uh, Now, now I got another email. This kind of blends in with this email, uh, this last one. Tamara Chase from Portland, Oregon says, who do you think was the the legit toughest woman and men wrestler and why? Uh, Tex Green. Sue Tex Green was the legitimate toughest woman in wrestling because she not only was a great worker, but she was a great shooter, and she was she's a great person. Um, the greatest men wrestler. Well, of course, Sandy Barr. Yeah. He trained. I can't pick anybody else over Sandy. He trained me. I know a lot of boys. I know a lot of boys that train under him, and he liked to. I heard he liked to show people how to hook and shoot. Dang straight. His 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 model was, if you couldn't, if if, if a fan can whoop your tail, you have no business in the business. Now, now, that, now, since you brought that up, um, so is that true how promoters back in the day, I, I don't know, if, uh, I think I heard Bill Watts was one of them. He didn't mind if you got into bar fights, but if you lost, you were fired? Absolutely correct. You could get in a bar fight. As long as you won, you were fine. If you lost, don't pass go, don't go to jail, go pack your bag, and go find somebody else to work for. Okay, I got I got Kayfabe from Parts Unknown. I don't think that's a real name, but I don't think so either. How did you come up with your gimmick, and did you always wrestle under Princess Victoria? I always wrestled under Princess Victoria, and my gimmick was already in my closet and my blood. I'm half Native American. My father was full Native American. Mm-hmm. The first best skirt and boots that I wore in the ring were already in my closet before I ever trained for professional wrestling. The moccasins 
were moccasins that I wore all the time, and all I had was a uh, wrestling heel put on them. The skirt, the white skirt with the embroidery on it, that was, uh, before I got into wrestling, it was a, uh, you remember the tie-around skirts, the wrap-around skirts? Uh-huh. That, that was a wrap-around skirt, and all I did was take the tie off and put Velcro on it. The vest I uh, bought at the uh, Oregon State Fair when Dr. Hook was there um, in, uh, in Salem. So it wasn't a gimmick. It was me. You know, that's another thing. Just like me, I'm, I'm a Middle Eastern, and my name, Dekwa Debashi, that's my legit name. And right. I, noticed, I noticed, like, a lot of the old schoolers, that's why they're so great, is that you are your gimmick, but amplified a million times in the wrestling ring. And everyone now, everyone now, I see like in WWF, they're given their gimmick, they're written their gimmick. And so I feel right. where you're coming from. Yeah, no. Uh, back in my day, you know, Dutch Savage was Dutch Savage. Uh-huh. You know, Roddy Piper. Roddy Piper played the bagpipes wonderfully. You know, yes, he... Yeah, I got a good one on pipe. Okay. I got a, I got two good ones on pipe. Okay. The first one is when I first broke into the business. Now he was up in the crow's nest doing an interview. We're all sitting in the dressing room watching the interview. Flipping Buddy Rose were at war, and uh, off the cuff, which was Piper. Piper was off the cuff. Piper didn't get a script. What you saw was Piper. And uh, he comes off the cuff. He goes, yep, I've got enough room in my belly button for the heart of a promoter, Buddy Rose's brain, and a cockroach egg. (laughs) And we all went, he's fired. (laughs) And if you remember Don Owens, Don Owens was a small stature of a man. Uh Well, we're all sitting in the dressing room, Piper's sitting there, and nobody's saying anything. The dressing room is a graveyard. And all of a sudden, here comes Don Owens. He's stomping in the dressing room. He stops in front of Piper. He says, I want to tell you something, boy. He said, that was the best damn interview I've seen in a long time. <laughs> That's awesome. The other story was me, Peggy Lee, Velvet McIntyre, and I think it was Lindy Richter were in my uh, Chevy station wagon. And we're following Piper. We're doing the New York tour. Well, Piper's leading us to the motel. Piper and Morocco are leading us to the motel. Piper takes a left into the motel. I go to take a left, and this car comes in front of me, and I take him out from the back door all the way to the back bumper. I get out of the car, and I tell the girls, head in. I hand them the beer. You know, we weren't drinking yet, but we were on the way to the motel. I told the girls, I said, go. I said, if I need bail, I'll call you. Go. Ah, here comes Piper. He had already parked in the motel room. Now, I destroyed this guy's car from from the back back, back driver's side door all the way to the bumper. And I'm apologizing, and all of a sudden, here comes Piper. And he goes, man, where did you come from? He said, how fast were you driving? Yeah, I I was there. I didn't see you. And then all of a sudden, he said, you must have been flying, boy. Have you been drinking? And the guy goes, yeah, I have. He said, well, you better get your car and get out of here because the cops are on their way. I've already called them. <laughs> the guy gets in the car and leaves. 
was probably $2,000 worth of damage to his car. Wow. I've, I've got a headlight I've got to replace because it was an old Chevy Malibu made out of steel, USA made. And Piper goes walking across the street, and he says, seven accidents, and I walked away from every one. Oh. <laughs> but he actually talked that guy into believing it was his fault. Oh, wow. That's some good talking. Like I said, he was off the cuff. Everybody, everybody else can use a script. I guarantee you there was not one Piper's pit that was scripted in any way, shape, or form. They may have given him a direction to go, uh-huh. but they, did, they didn't give him a script. And if they did, he didn't follow it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we got Connie from Beaverton, Oregon. On a recent Jim Cornette podcast, he had mentioned something jokingly about Hacksaw Jim Duggan putting some kind of wrestling move on you. Did you and Duggan ever date, or was that some kind of inside random joke? Uh, uh, Jimmy Duggan and I... We kind of sort of dated for a while, but he met Debbie. And I came back into the territory, and I saw Jimmy and Debbie, and I was so happy because Debbie treated him like a king, and he treated her like a queen, and they were so right for each other. But Jimmy and I remain friends to this day. In fact, the uh, the night I came into the territory, Jimmy and Debbie had me over to the house, and we went in the hot tub. But you no, know, we had we had a little thing, but it wasn't it wasn't a thing. It was just right. A, yeah. Oh, okay. Awesome. But he's a good man. Awesome. Yeah, I heard a lot of good things. I met him. I met him a couple times on a show. In, I think it was in Flint, Michigan, and picked his brain a little. And you know, he he was awesome. He seemed like he was a generally nice guy. Oh, he is. He's got a heart. His heart is bigger, three times bigger than his body. Uh, He's a gentleman. He's intelligent. And he loves his family. You know, that's that's one thing about the old school guys that I can say. Their families came first. You know? I got got, got a good email. Uh, Your blood might might boil, but... Dave Dave Justin from Atlanta, Georgia. As a woman wrestler traveling all over and worked for WWF and NWA, what did you think about GLOW, Gorgeous Ladies of Wrestling? Also, how did your peers feel about it? Go, go, oh, oh, you mean GLOW? Yeah. Oh, GLOW was what it was. It was a Saturday morning cartoon. You know, Grimlina is one of my friends. Who? You know, Grimlina. Oh, okay, uh-huh. Yeah, several of those girls are my friends. In fact, they're they're having a show that's going to a weekly show uh, that is a documentary that's going to uh, do all all of Glow, uh, Glow Wrestling again. You know, Glow Glow was what it was. It, now that was entertainment, but they didn't hold themselves as professional wrestlers. Gotcha. I they held as entertainment. Yeah, I remember watching. They had it during the wrestling block on Saturday night. Right. I remember I had the biggest crush on Spanish Fly and Babe the Farmer's Daughter. Oh, oh God, you are so sad. Wait oh. until I tell her. Wait until I tell her. Oh, really? Okay, and, and, and Ivory, uh, uh, Tina Ferrari. Uh-huh. I got to meet her. She, she, I was on some shows with her. She, she lives here in Washington. Right. 
Yeah. Yeah, oh, yeah. You know, those ladies, she didn't hold themselves up as professional wrestlers. And they don't today. They were the gorgeous ladies of wrestling. You know, that was something uh, Stallone's mother put together. And they're still holding together. I mean, Glow was, when I remember Glow, Glow was on Saturday morning cartoons. You know, that's what I thought. Yeah. See, I I never watched it in the morning. I remember they put it at night. Oh, quick story, though. I remember watching the Celebrity Family Feud years ago. I was probably like, I was in junior high or high school, whatever. And I was so pissed off at, I think it was Scott Steiner at the time, because he was flirting flirting with Babe, the farmer's daughter, on Family Feud. (laughs) (laughs) I just had to get that out there. Ah, Nice. (laughs) <laughs> nice. We we all had our crushes before we got in the business, and after we got in the business. You know, no. one one of my greatest disappointments was I got my neck broke before The Rock got in. <laughs> oh God! Oh, I got a, a funny Rock story. Was before I went to my uh, parent, my dad used to take me uh, Don Owens at the Bicentennial Pavilion down here in Tacoma. Right, and that, I remember. That night, I uh, got the uh, Rocky Johnson's autograph. And as right. Soon as, he, as soon as he gave me his autograph with the 8x10, I was probably 14 at the time, Buddy Rose came up behind him and whacked him in the head with the chain. Right. To promote, um, I think, the dog collar match the next week or whatever. Right. I can't remember. And I remember looking at Playboy Buddy Rose. He's looking down at me. I said, you know what? You're going to work for me one day. And what was funny about, like, Seven years later, he worked for me. I thought it was fun. We, we were we we were talking about that. But mm. Buddy was a good good friend of mine. Um, in fact, I got a good Buddy Rose story. Uh, we were uh, my family. I never smartened him up. Uh, didn't want to take the magic away. Exactly. You know. And Buddy Rose and I were in a feud. And he had said in an interview, you know, the only place a woman belongs is in the kitchen or the bedroom. She doesn't belong in the ring. Well, I uh-huh. kicked him. In, I kicked him in the sweet spot on in the crow's nest. So, <laughs> and I became a part of an eight eight man over the top battle royal. Me and Velvet. Uh-huh. I was the last one in the ring, and Buddy threw me into a brick wall, and uh, my head got busted open. And he's sitting there putting the boots to me. And all of a sudden, I look up, because I was curled up in a ball, and I look up, because something felt wrong. And I look up, and here's my little brother, Doug, straddling my body, (laughs) boxer stance, small side to Buddy, fist pulled all the way back, and he looks at Buddy, and he says, if you hit her again, you son of a bitch, I'll kill you. And Buddy's just standing there. He doesn't know what to do. Because <laughs> he's been a 12-year-old kid. What's he going to do to him? And uh, finally, Sandy and the security gets down and gets him put back in his seat. And I get down to the dressing room, and Buddy looks at me. He said, wow, that's one tough kid. Who was it? I said, that's my little brother, Doug. I said, he would have killed you if he gave him the chance. <laughs> but I had to sit him down that night after the match. I had to sit Doug down and say, look, Little brother, this is my job. And no matter what happens in that ring, you can't interfere because this is my job. I said, you have to let what happens happen. 
and you can't ever do that again. Did you expose it to him, or you just kept it like that to him? Oh, sir, I just left it like that. I was not going to expose it to him. Yeah, that's awesome. They were were great wrestling fans, you know? My family were great. They loved the business. I was not going to expose the business to them. Why would I hurt my family like that? Yeah. Yep. Leave it for Vinny to do later, the idiot. Yeah. No, I do not like Vince McMahon Jr. I do not like him. I have no respect for him. Yeah. Well, okay. Ryan Blue from Seattle, Washington asks, do you have any good road stories that you would like to share? Got one good one. Well, I've got several good ones, but one of my favorites was uh, Rudy Richter and I, and I think it was Terry Taylor, were traveling with Manny Fernandez down in Texas. And as a lot of the old-timers know, when you're traveling long distances, the only stop you make is for gas and you do everything at the gas station, and if you have to piddle in between the gas stops, you pull over the side of the road, you jump out of the car, you do what you got to do, and you get back in the car. Uh-huh. Every time that Wendy and I got out of the car on this road trip with Manny, Manny had put the uh, high beams on us. <laughs> and I, I, I'm not a racist person, and forgive me, but when I got back in the car about the third time he did it, I'm sitting in the back seat, Terry Taylor sitting beside me, so I knew Manny couldn't lay a glove on me. And I started telling Hispanic jokes. Well, they were kind of Hispanic jokes. I took every joke that I knew and referred to Hispanics with it. Oh, you did your own little twist. Oh, yeah, I did my own little twist. <laughs> well, by the time we get to the, to the uh, arena that night, Manny is fuming. And the EMTs that night were rather large Hispanic gentlemen. They, if they, weighed, they weighed 300 pounds each if they weighed an ounce. And here comes, here comes Manny marching in the dressing room with these two MTs, EMTs, and he marches up to me and goes, go ahead, go ahead, tell them your Mexican jokes, tell them your Mexican jokes. I kind of went, okay. I said, hey, guys, why do flies have wings? And they looked at me and they went, why? I said to beat Manny Fernandez to the uh, garbage can. <laughs> Manny threw up his hand, said to hell with it, and walked out of the dressing room. <laughs> Those two security guards took me around to the back street bars. I think it was Browns, Texas we were in at that time. But they took me partying the whole night. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, okay, Les Crown from Detroit, Michigan. Has WWE ever tried to get a hold of you to be in the Hall of Fame or anything for their network? No, and I've made it quite clear. I do not want to be in their Hall of Fame. I I don't want to. I'll be in the uh, Professional Wrestling Hall of Fame that Dutch Mantel has something to do with. But uh, 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 but WWE Hall of Fame, why would I want to be in it? I mean, for God's sakes, uh, Andy uh, Kaufman is in there. You know, why? Why would I want to be in there with people like that? You know, I'm waiting for them to start putting the freaking security guards in the parking lot in that Hall of Fame. (laughs) And there's just not enough money. I I don't want anything to do with the WWE. I don't want to be associated with it in any way, shape, or form. Okay. Well, okay, I've got one last here, one uh, one email left here. Phil from Chicago, Illinois. At one time, I tried to become a professional wrestler last year. 
It was one of the hardest things I ever did. I played football in college and trained in MMA. I still train in MMA, but I still but I still am a big wrestling fan. I have much respect for all you athletes. So my question is, how do you feel when someone calls wrestling the F word as in fake? Yeah, it may be predetermined, but it's far from fake. You cannot fake gravity. Well, I look at it this way. In order to be, I'll give you a thing that I used to do. Every reporter that you ever did an interview with back in my day, that was the question. Is it fake? And I'd look at him, I'd say, did you enjoy the match tonight? They, of course, would say yes. I said, did you have a good time? They, of course, would say yes. Do you feel like you got your money's worth? They, of course, would say yes. And I'd say, then why do you care? Ooh, I like that. And as far as people calling it fake, I dare any person who uses, like you said, the F word, I dare them, dare them to step in a ring and do one first day of professional wrestling and not throw up. <laughs> yep, that's, you hear that? That's a challenge, everybody. It is a challenge. It is a challenge. You have to be a choreographer, a ballerina, a, a gymnast, a wrestler, a weightlifter, a runner. And you have to be halfway intelligent. Yep. So you show me any other sport that has to combine all those sports in order to do one sport. Oh, exactly, exactly. Okay, I have a question for you. Do you have any good Kevin Sullivan or Abdullah the Butcher stories you can share so I could rip them the next time I talk to them? Unfortunately, no, but I'll, I'll, I'll dare you to kiss Kevin on the cheek when you see him from me. Okay, I sure will. I sure will. Okay. We're running out of time here, but I want to play uh, would you like to play a word association game with me? I'll just say sure. a word and you just the first thing that comes to your mind is say it. Okay. All right. You ready? I'm ready. Okay, Sandy Barr. A gentleman's gentleman and a fantastic trainer and wrestler and referee. Don Owens. Awesome. Barry Owens. Who? Bear, uh, his brother. You mean Elton Owen? I mean El oh, Elton Owen. Uh, Jimmy Snooker. Hero. Uh, Hulk Hogan. No. <laughs> Fabulous <laughs> Moolah. I can't cuss like that on TV, on radio. Oh, sure you can, but I respect that. Thief. <laughs> uh, Fabulous uh, move. Thief. What did you say, thief? Thief, as in thief. Oh, okay. okay. Uh, Mae Young. Tough. Velvet McIntyre. Friend. Sabrina. Sweetheart. Kayfabe. Dead. Barry Owens. Wasn't that Don Owens' son? Barry Owens. 
I cannot remember a Barry Allen. It, it just could be, it, I don't remember him. Okay. I really don't remember him. I mean, it could be that it's one of those, you know how you lose a memory? Yes, yes. And that could be one of those because I've had some interviews lately that have brought back lost memories, like when Ed Wiskowski did the uh, Great Guru Act. And I had totally lost that memory until somebody described him. So that could be a lost memory in my brain. And I got, I got to give Todd from Perk Chris Washington the credit for this list. Thank you. Nice job, Todd. Okay. Uh, okay, we're running short of time. You know, It was a pleasure and honor to have you on. Uh, it was a pleasure and honor to be on. Thank you, sir. No problem. Do you have any last words or social media links or anything you want to plug and want the listeners to hear? Uh, go ahead and go to Velvet McIntyre and Princess Victoria on Facebook. That's our official fan page. Um, I try to post videos and pictures as often as I can. Um, and just be true to yourself. Be okay. true to your soul. Okay, and uh, one last thing. Any words of advice for up-and-coming wrestlers or workers to keep the wrestling alive? The business alive. Hone your craft. Work for the crowd. Work to please the crowd, not to get your stuff in. And train with a true professional wrestler. Jesse, Jesse, uh, 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 Jesse Ventura, I believe, has got a school. I know Samu Anoa up in uh, Pennsylvania has got an awesome school. Sue Tex Green trains. Go to the trainers. Stay away from these idiot unknowns that you've never heard their name. If you've never heard their name, there's a reason for it. Go to a true professional wrestling school. You got that, and, people? And, final note, keep your mouth shut in the dressing room and keep your ears open. God gave you two ears and one mouth for a reason. You keep your mouth shut in the dressing room and you listen, you're going to learn. And if you do that, you're going to get respect from the old timers. There you go. Respect. Key word is respect. Absolutely correct. Like, like I said, it was a pleasure, and you're always welcome to come back anytime you want to vent, to plug anything. Uh, Sue Podcasts is Sue Pod, or I don't even know, Sue Casa is Mikasa, whatever the saying is. Sue Casa Yeah, goes with the saying, goes with this podcast, too. But um, like I said, thank you very much. And before I ring the bell to end this show, I want to leave you with this. This is from 1963. In, in memory of Muhammad Ali, who passed away, um, singing the classic of B.E. Kings. This is Muhammad Ali singing Stand By Me. Only
Kobashi's Radio Takedown is a Seisaha Dynamite Productions. This is They Love, the Butcher Dobashi. Please share, follow, and or subscribe on iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and on most of your major podcast platforms. That way you'll get notifications and you will not miss a single daily spit. I am also ordained and I can marry you and give you all your blessing needs. Send your booking request to debashibookings at gmail.com. For all the links, go to lyricalspit.com. And I'll talk with you tomorrow with my daily message. My daily spit. Help keep this show free by buying some of our swag of apparel at ButcherSpit.com. We have t-shirts, hoodies, and even baby onesies. That's ButcherSpit.com. Be sure to check out Murky Chronicles drops every Friday. Hosted by yours truly, Theifala, the Butcher Dobashi, and Kenny Roberts. With guests, stories, news on unexplained and bizarre happenings, you can listen on your favorite podcast platforms or just go to lyricalspit.com for the latest shows and links. <laughs>